Welcome to the Lessons from Lab and Life podcast. I'm your host, Lydia Morrison, and I hope that this podcast offers you some new perspective. This is the second episode of our COVID-19 Researcher Spotlight series, aimed at highlighting preprints, publications, protocols, and other research related to COVID-19, all in 19 minutes or less. Today, I'm joined by molecular biologist Feng Zhang of the Broad Institute and his former students who now have a lab of their own, Jonathan Gutenberg and Omar Aboudier of the McGovern Institute for Brain Research at MIT. Fung, Omar, and Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having us. I was wondering if we could start by your explaining a bit about your Stop COVID uh, research. Sure. Um, so we started to work on uh, Stop COVID uh, when we first learned about the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, this was back in January. And um, I remember reading an article in the New York Times saying that there's a new virus that's uh, causing havoc for the public health system in China. And um, we had been working on uh, using CRISPR um, proteins for detecting uh, nucleic acids and pathogens uh, before. Uh, we developed a technique called Sherlock. And we thought uh, maybe uh, given this public health concern, uh, we can start to repurpose what we developed before so that we can use it to uh, detect, for, uh, detect coronavirus. And uh, since then, uh, we've been working on trying to make the approach as sensitive and also as easy to use as possible. And that's what led to Stop COVID. So how does the Stop COVID method work? Omar, do you want to, or Jonathan, do you want to start with that? Yeah, this is Jonathan. Um, so Stop COVID relies on the basic technology of CRISPR diagnostics, which is essentially the use of these CRISPR enzymes and their kind of interesting collateral effect to detect nucleic acids and then trigger a actual cleavage of other nucleic acids in solution that allows us to produce a detectable signal. So what happens is that when these CRISPR enzymes and the CRISPR enzyme we're using in stop COVID is Cas12b, but when it detects a sequence that it's programmed to target, um, and this is a sequence that corresponds to a place in the SARS-CoV-2 genome, it uh, becomes activated and actually will then cut a reporter that we've doped into the solution, which can produce a fluorescence. The One of the interesting things about stop COVID is that we've coupled in the same solution, uh, this CRISPR detection with a isothermal amplification. So that is an amplification similar in principle to PCR, where we're getting kind of exponential production of a DNA species, but it occurs at a single temperature. So we don't have to go through any cycling steps. So that amplification, which is called LAMP, um, occurs at 60 degrees Celsius or 60 to 65 degrees Celsius. And we can do that in the same reaction as this CRISPR detection. So what essentially happens is that when we do the LAMP amplification on the RNA genome of uh, SARS-CoV-2, then we can produce a lot of DNA that can then basically be very rapidly detected by the Cas12 to produce a fluorescence or a single uh, lateral flow signal we can detect in a strip very easily. So it's a, a very simplified test uh, for these molecular diagnostics that needs much less equipment. Less equipment sounds good, especially for places that don't have access to large um, instrumentation necessary to run like RT-PCR or sequencing. 
what what are the other advantages of the stop COVID test? I guess some of the other, I mean, some of the main advantages of the stop COVID tests are really the the price point um, as well as the uh, portability of the test. And so, you know, a really big thing that we thought about when we were trying to simplify our original technology was how to limit the number of steps there are for the user, um, you know, in, in terms of fluid handling, as well as points where you could open up the tubes and cause spread of your reaction, which can cause false positives and future reactions. That contamination mm -hmm. actually really impacted the CDC test. And so um, the ability to make this into a single reaction with very uh, limited steps for the user really makes this as plausible as possible for you know, being able to go to maybe people's homes or uh, point of care settings in the future. Um, and then, of course, the price is something we've been really thinking about. And so the components and the chemistries that go into it are um, readily scalable um, and uh, will help to hopefully make this possible for daily testing or every other day testing in the future, um, which is a real goal of ours. So what makes this test um, more scalable than those currently available? The goal of developing Stop COVID is to make the reaction um, as easy to perform as possible and also to uh, have a high level of sensitivity. Um, I think one of the um, uh, advantages of Stop COVID is that um, the system uh, can all work within a single step. And mm -hmm. that means um, the user uh, will um, simply uh, put, it, put a sample into the Stop COVID workflow and then be able to read out uh, the result uh, through uh, this kind of streamlined um, uh, workflow process. Um, the reagents that go into creating a stop COVID reaction uh, is, um, is, is not that different than uh, other uh, amplification techniques uh, like LAMP or, uh, or even PCR. It's, it's a few uh, proteins that will have to be prepared. And, and we've been um, uh, getting quite a bit of help from, 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 from NEB. Uh, with purifying some of these proteins, uh, which has been really helpful for us. And, um, and so um, once you have all that, um, then the ability to be able to run an isothermal uh, reaction, but with um, high levels of sensitivity, uh, I think that that's what makes that COVID um, uh, particularly interesting. So I think Omar mentioned that, you know, this is a test that someone might be able to do at home. Is that is that one of the future goals uh, for the stop COVID test? That this would be, you know, a home diagnostic kind of like a pregnancy test that someone could take. That's um, that that is um, the ultimate goal of um, making the diagnostic something that people can use um, in the comfort of their own homes, so that they don't have to uh, travel to the hospital. Um, and and if they are infected with the virus um, during that uh, trip. Uh, there's the chance of them exposing other people to the virus. So, so that's that's the goal. There are still things that we have to uh, work out in order to make this something that is truly uh, turnkey, so that people can uh, run uh, in in their homes. Uh, so we're working on uh, figuring out how how we might be able to develop a device uh, that can make the process um, uh, very streamlined and and just one step and. Um, uh, get a result in a very uh, fail-proof uh, type of way. So how would those results be read out? How are the results delivered um, in the Stop COVID assay? In our current uh, white paper that we released, uh, we actually had the readout with a visual readout where the uh, collateral activity 
cleaves a DNA species that can then be detected by a lateral flow strip, which essentially has the same readout uh, kind of properties as a pregnancy test. It's mm. great line. Um, but one of the very nice things about this technology is that it's very modular. So we can change the readout from a lateral flow readout to a fluorescent readout and vice versa. Um, so for future iterations, um, each of these different readouts has kind of different uh, values. Obviously, the lateral flow readout has uh, the idea that you don't need any sort of readout uh, instrumentation. You can do it by eye. But fluorescent readouts can be kind of faster because you can read them um, in real time. Um, and they that can also lead sometimes to more quantitative readouts. So in future iterations of the chemistry and how the technology goes, we're envisioning um, either readout as potential options and, and looking at the positive and negatives of both. And so I'm thinking about, you know, the utility of this as a home test. Um, and obviously a pregnancy test is, is easy to take, but performing like a nasopharyngeal swab at home would obviously be a little bit more difficult and re require uh, a little bit more training. Uh, so what sort of samples uh, would this test work on? I think, you know, yeah, nasopharyngeal swabs are, you know, have been used heavily in the past. And yeah, they're not ideal for someone to take on their own because I think they're they're pretty invasive and uncomfortable. So, you know, a big goal of Stop COVID was how do we port this over to other tests? And so, you know, there's been a number of papers on saliva um, being uh, useful and having similar uh, viral loads. And maybe some people have made cases that might be even higher viral loads than other sample types. And of course, there's also anterior nares swabs, which is basically a nasal swab. Um, and so we've been, uh, we've actually shown in the white paper that we can work from sort of the saliva matrix and we're exploring saliva samples and the ultimate goal is hopefully to move towards uh, nasal swabs because uh, with saliva or nasal swabs someone could easily provide that sample type on their own. Mm, absolutely. You mentioned that isothermal amplification step which is great because it occurs at one temperature and you know one temperature is probably something that someone could achieve at home with um, maybe not a cup of hot water, but maybe like a sous vide type instrument. What is the sensitivity of this test like and how does it compare to some of the RT-QPCR tests that are currently available? Yeah, so isothermal amplifications are really great because they can be read out you know, without having to change the temperature on like PCR. Um, and they're also very rapid and very sensitive. So in our current uh, publication, um, or I should say white paper that we released, uh, we have a limited detection of 100 viral copies. And we're working to push that uh, farther using additional methods. One thing is that if you compare these isothermal methods, or I should say point of care methods to traditional readouts um, like qPCR, and in qPCR, um, the clin current clinical protocol involves concentration and purification, um, which while very difficult to do in a point of care setting because it requires um, instrumentation and often expert uh, kind of handling of the sample, um, does have the value of taking potentially a lot of volume and you know putting a lot more concentrated uh, viral sample into that. So uh, one thing that we're looking to do uh, in future iterations is potentially figure out ways that we can increase uh, concentration and you know, break the limit of what you can do without a concentrated sample. Um, so that's one thing that we're, we're thinking about. That's excellent. So could you guys tell me how you all got involved in this project together? So, so Jonathan, Omar, and I have uh, been working together 
many years now. They they were um, they were graduate students in my lab, and now they are uh, independent uh, PIs at MIT uh, as junior fellows. When the coronavirus uh, uh, issue first uh, came up in the news, um, we saw the news and realized that this is going to be um, an, a critical problem. And um, and because we have been working on Sherlock diagnostics before, uh, we thought it would be great to to develop Sherlock um, so that we can use it to uh, detect coronavirus. And uh, and as we started to uh, develop the technique, uh, we sent reagents out uh, to a number of collaborators around the world. Uh, they have given us uh, feedback that the reaction works well. Uh, it's sensitive, and and in fact, one of our collaborate, collaborators in Thailand um, has uh, received approval so that they are using it in their hospitals to be able to screen uh, new patients who are coming in for surgery uh, so that they can triage them differently uh, based on their uh, infection status. Um, but one of the feedback that we received is also that the reaction is a little uh, challenging to do because uh, you have to run the amplification first and then combine it uh, with the CRISPR detection step. And that um, transfer step um, can pose risks for uh, sample contamination. And so because uh, given all those feedback, we then um, went back to the drawing board to think about how can we uh, overcome these uh, challenges. And then, and then we thought maybe we can um, develop a robust uh, one-pot reaction. And, um, and then that's when we thought maybe um, uh, you know, integrating the preamp and also uh, with the new uh, CRISPR protein that can be stable uh, during the amplification process uh, would, help, would help us get there. We've sent that reagent out to a number of collaborators as well. And, and, uh, and now one of the things that we are focused on is to make it more sensitive uh, because uh, as we uh, try to uh, develop the test to be broadly used, uh, we want to make sure that it has um, as low of false negatives as possible. And, uh, and, and that is something that we're focused on now. Um, hopefully we'll have more improvements to report uh, soon. Um, and, then, uh, and then simultaneously we're, we're collaborating with others to see how we can best uh, get this into a, a point of care or um, uh, in a sort of simple, simple format so that people can use it in a, in a much more widely distributed way. Well, that's excellent. And I certainly look forward to um, seeing it be available for home use. Certainly many more diagnostics are going to be necessary in order for the globe really to start opening up, opening borders more um, and people to sort of get back to life in a more natural, um, more normal sort of way, the way that we were used to. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciate all the efforts from your group, all of your groups, um, as well as the collaborations. I think that this has been a great time to really emphasize the scientific collaborations that happen around the globe. And it's it's really refreshing, I think, to see these surrounding um, medical problems and solving these global uh, health problems. And so hopefully this will continue into the future as well. Yeah, definitely. And and I think this has really been one of the most collaborative periods uh, in science that we have all experienced. Uh, scientists from around the world are, are really coming together, uh, recognizing that we are all f- um, uh, universally faced with one common problem. And then by, by joining our efforts together, um, 
we'll be able to get out of this uh, sooner. Uh, but also, I want to just thank you guys. Um, you know, NEB has been a great partner working with us, uh, providing proteins uh, expertise, uh, which has been uh, very helpful for as, as we are sort of uh, working in this challenging time uh, to get access to reagents as quickly as possible. Uh, so, so thank you all for for all of your help too. Well, speaking on behalf of NEB, I can say that it is it is our honor and privilege to be able to help support your research, um, and we're very happy to do so. Just as a kind of a closing, could you tell us um, tell us something good? Do any of you have any good stories about maybe things that have happened or reflections that you've had during this this time in quarantine? It's been an exciting time to kind of see, as Fung mentioned, people come together and be more collaborative and. It, in the context of all of this, it's also kind of still enjoyable to see, you know, the science of this, you know, discovery process. So the Castrol V enzyme that we're using here is um, kind of one that's from a very thermophilic bacterium that's actually uh, spoils fruit juices, um, which is kind of uh, an interesting little anecdote about where these different enzymes can come from. Um, so it's kind of neat to still keep going back and mining these different enzymes for these properties. Similarly, uh, during the process of this, we've done some optimizations that are just kind of fun to do. We did a screening panel of different uh, additives to increase the activity of the reaction. And the one that actually came out as kind of the best was uh, taurine, which is, um, you know, in certain energy drinks, and it's kind of a, a neat stabilizing um, molecule. So it's kind of neat to still be able to go back to the lab and tinker around and kind of see these cool discoveries, even if it's in the context of everything that's going on. Um, so, you know, you have to find kind of these moments of joy uh, in the backdrop of, you know, maybe a broader context. Well, I'm glad that you've been able to find some moments of joy. I know that you've all been working very, very hard and diligently on this research on the stop COVID kit and, and method. Um, and, it's wonderful to see all the results shared so quickly. I mean, it's nice to see the the white papers and the preprints come out so regularly. Uh, it's nice to see this equal and open sharing of scientific information um, and knowledge. And it's certainly, I think, that something that the public is really um, desirous of at this particular time. So thank you all so much for your work. Thank, thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks so much for joining me today as well. Um, and hopefully we can speak again sometime. Yeah, take care. Stay healthy in the meantime. Thank you. You as well. Thanks for tuning in to this episode. Be sure to check out the transcript of this podcast for helpful links to further resources. And tune in for our COVID-19 Researcher Spotlight Series episode next week, which will actually be an NEB TV episode in which I'm interviewing Nathan Tanner, a senior scientist here at NEB, and our resident expert on loop-mediated isothermal amplification, or LAMP, technology. Nathan has a great perspective on lots of different applications of LAMP for SARS-CoV-2 diagnostics, so join us and find out how this single-temperature amplification method is being used to create simple and robust COVID-19 diagnostics.